0: Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. It can be found in the Pew Bible on page 1041. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death.
1: Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer before we look to his word. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you, Father, for the power of the Spirit of God that uses that word to change our hearts, and we ask that you would do that today, that nobody would leave this service unchanged. We ask you for your mercy and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I got interested in barbershop music when I was in college. Uh, That's four-part men's harmonies. It can be done in a quartet. It can be done in a chorus. And it involves a lot of unresolved chords. That's one of its marks. For instance, some of you may know that our men's chorus has traditionally sung, we wish you a Merry Christmas at the end of the Christmas Eve service. And there's a big unresolved chord that we hold and a happy new, we hold it new and then we resolve it. Year. Of course, the more familiar is the Amen that ends many hymns. You old-timers perhaps remember that all the hymns used to end that way. In fact, we did one this morning with the doxology. In fact, let's just try that again. Caleb did a great job with it, no criticism, but I want you to hear the unresolved chord. We're going to sing it, and then we're going to hold the ah until I direct the resolution. <laughs> and if you go too soon, you will be exited from the service. <laughs> let's just try it. Ready? Amen. Very good. You can all stay. (laughs) Did you feel it? Did you feel the tension? Now why is that tension important? That unresolved chord. It's because Esther, which we're studying this summer, is really a series of unresolved chords, isn't it? But Esther is a microcosm. It's a prophecy of all of redemptive history. Theologians call it the already not yet continuum. And as far as God's plan for redemption is concerned, there's a bunch of stuff Now, that's a really theological phrase. There's a bunch of stuff that has already taken place, and there's a bunch of stuff that has not yet taken place. And here's the problem. It's difficult to live in the tension between those two, isn't it? It's difficult to sing an unresolved chord, isn't it? An awe without the men. So here's the question, how do we do it? Jesus promised us rest, but how can we rest when the cord of life is unresolved? How can we rest amid the uncomfortable fracture of the already in God's plan versus the not yet? Well, Esther will help us navigate that fracture this morning by picturing it, if you will, in a sort of Old Testament 3D way, so that you and I might not grow weary and lose heart as we're in the midst of it. You see, Esther's prophecy in type will show us the way to persistent God-honoring rest through faith. Now, before we jump in, I want you to look at my sermon outline, because you might be intimidated by it. It looks rather intense. I knew I was in trouble when I was asking Eric during our trip this week to look at it, and that was his first reaction. He said, wow, that's kind of intense. And I told all of the preview weekend candidates, this is not a good example of a homiletical outline. Isn't that great teaching, you know? Yeah, come to Vermont, and I'll show you what not to do. However, I think it's simpler than you might think. I want you to notice, first of all, the, the two main categories. One is prophetic, one is fulfilled. First of all, redemption is prophesied in Esther. You see that, Roman numeral one. And then it is fulfilled in Christ. That's a pretty simple breakdown. And then I secondly want you to notice that in each section, there's an already and a not yet. So there's an already prophesied in Esther, there's a not yet, that will be prophesied in Esther as we continue through the book. And likewise with Christ. There's an already that's fulfilled in Christ, and there's a not yet that will be fulfilled in Christ as we progress in redemptive history. And then Roman numeral three is just application. So it's really fairly simple. My passage is 1A3. That's my passage, and that's why it's been given the most print. I think it will be fairly easy to follow if you just... Follow that idea. So, with that said, let's begin walking through what we've seen already. The already that's been preached from the book of Esther. We saw that chapters 1 and 2, God providentially raised up two Messiah types. First, Esther through the beauty pageant, uh, which was designed to pick a new queen, and then Mordecai, who discovered and reported the murder plot to the king. You remember those two things? And they were raised up. And both were Jewish exiles under the Medo-Persian Empire and the rule of King Xerxes, also known as King Ahasuerus. Then in chapter 3, we saw God raise up a serpent type. Now let me stop right there and take you back to Genesis 3.15, just so we're all on the same page. Genesis 3.15. Turn with me there if you would just for a minute. You know that Adam sinned, he and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and then God proceeded to curse all of them, including the serpent who had tempted them. He says, beginning in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Obviously, the, devil, the, the snake is not just a snake. It's the devil. It's an embodiment of the devil, and so we have this curse, this enmity that will be put between him and the woman's seed. Ultimately, we know Messiah. Now, This perpetual enmity and strife between the seeds, the devils and the womans, uh, starts to manifest itself with the raising up of the woman's seed, which we saw in chapters 1 and 2. And now we're introduced in chapter 3 to a type or picture of the serpent's seed in the evil Haman. Remember Haman, the newly appointed right-hand man to the king, who was offended that Mordecai refused to honor him? and he sought and was awarded an irrevocable death edict on Mordecai and all the Jews throughout the empire. Now in response to that, Mordecai, in chapter 4, solicited Queen Esther to risk her life by approaching her husband the king and interceding on behalf of her people, the Jews, to which she's agreed to do. So let's pick it up in Esther chapter 5, our text this morning. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood at the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request?' It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king said. Now, as Craig said In his intro, you cannot see three-day language without going to Christ. This section starts with on the third day. And we know from the New Testament that twice the Old Testament prophesied that Christ would be raised on the third day. I said that wrong. The New Testament says twice that the Old Testament prophesied that Christ would be raised on the third day. Esther is about to approach the king unsolicited, an act that earns immediate death unless the king extends his scepter of favor. Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, in his work, Persia and the Bible, tells of a depiction that was excavated from this time period, and it depicted a Persian king, either Darius from the book of Daniel, or Xerxes, Ahasuerus from our book. It depicted A Persian king sitting on his throne with an axeman by his side, ready to cut down anyone approaching the throne unsolicited or unwanted. Now that's graphic, isn't it? That's 3D kind of imagery. We start to get something of the holiness of God from that picture, don't we? Queens are no exception. Remember, Esther had already said, if I perish, I perish. She's prepared to perish because you don't just saunter up to the king and say, how you doing? Of course, the king, we know, extends the golden scepter of favor, but I want you to think about all that's being represented pictorially there. In essence, Esther goes through a metaphorical death and resurrection, that's why it's third day language, and now it's time to intercede. Do you see the gospel in that? And the king promises to meet her request, up to half his kingdom. But as we see, starting in verse 4, Esther delays. She delays. She buys time. Now, why does she do that? Well, there are several theories possible, I think. But let me cut to the chase and suggest that Esther is setting a trap, that she's not yet ready to spring. Now, right off the bat you're probably saying, I, you know, I'm not comfortable with traps. Traps seem unchristian. They seem deceptive. I mean, aren't traps always something about deception? Don't they always involve some type of deception? Yes. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you that there's lots of traps in the Bible by righteous people. How about the Hebrew midwives? Did they not deceive Pharaoh? Or how about J.L.? You know, she's my favorite. In fact, I wanted to name our last daughter J.L., but I got overruled. You know, she's the one that's in the tent, just do-do-do, cleaning her tent, sweeping, you know. And Sazera, the commander of the enemy, comes in, and she invites him in, gives him a little warm milk, he falls asleep and ka the temp peg through the temple. That was kind of deceptive, wasn't it? Or how about David, who feigns madness? Remember that story? And he's got spittle, drool going down his beard. He gets the Philistine king to think that he's, he's gone mad. And even the king's Wise men say, Don't try, this guy's got his 10,000s. Don't trust this guy. And of course, once he's away from that, he starts slaughtering more Philistines. That's kind of deceptive. I think we have to recognize that all of these people are deceiving evil leaders in order to protect God's people. If we had time, I would show you where Jesus was not always straightforward with the people that he dealt with. We have to be careful to not impose some sort of unbiblical morality on these situations. Nevertheless, Esther engages in the same godly deception to defeat the deceiver. She's not ready to spring her trap, so she asks only that the king and Haman attend a banquet on the next day. And the king repeats his promise to give her up to half of his kingdom. But at that banquet... She delays making her request, asking only that the king and Haman attend a banquet on the following day. This puts the unwary Haman in a very cheery mood. He's entitled to a little cheer. It's not going to go well with him. Let's turn back to chapter 5 and verse 9. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotion with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. And yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning... Tell the king to have Mordecai hang upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman leaves the banquet joyful and glad of heart, having been selected uniquely to attend the next day's banquet with the king but then he sees his arch nemesis Mordecai who again refuses to honor him or pay him any homage and Haman's rage returns but he doesn't act on it he exercises a modicum of self-control and instead he convenes a council a group of friends along with his wife Zeresh and he rehearses his resume of achievement achievements his riches his sons, his promotions, and especially these unique banquet invitations, none of which compensate for the agitation felt uh, by Mordecai's slight. So his wife and his friends make a simple recommendation. They say, look, build a gallows 50 cubits high. 50 cubits high is 75 feet. That's over twice the height of my three-story house I mean this is ridiculously high build a 75 foot gallows and in the morning have the king hang Mordecai then go joyfully with the king to Esther's banquet now, Haman is very pleased with this council and proceeds to have the gallows made his joy is restored now by the way such a height would ensure that Mordecai would be seen from a great distance and that his reproach be observed far and wide. Well, now the scene shifts from Haman's house to the king's palace. Let's pick it up in chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written... How Mordecai had told about Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? than me. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I know, it's funny. So Haman took the robes and the horse, And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Well, it all starts with royal insomnia, doesn't it? The king can't sleep. That's kind of a motif in scripture, isn't it? The king can't sleep, and a bedtime story consisting of the book of memorable deeds is brought and read Mordecai's heroics in saving the king are recalled, and the king discovers that nothing was done to honor him for this service. At that very moment, Haman enters the scene, and the king engages Haman about how to honor someone who turns out to be Mordecai. And this whole scenario is unbelievably ironic for several reasons. First, Haman entered the king's court to secure his blessing on his plan to hang Mordecai on the recently built gallows. And second, Haman thinks the man to be honored is himself, not Mordecai the Jew. And third, Haman actually plans the honorary ceremony, one in which, of course, he was seeing himself being honored. And finally, Haman is charged to do the honors Arraying Mordecai with the king's robe and seated on the king's steed and leading him through the city proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. You just can't make this stuff up. And having completed this humiliating assignment, this radical reversal of fortunes, Haman returns home in mourning with his head covered in shame. And he reports to Zeresh and his friends all that happened, which produces this chilling prediction from them. They say something like this. Assuming the one before whom you have already begun to fall, that is Mordecai, assuming that he is a Jew, then despite the gallows built and despite the death edict secured, you're going down you will surely fall before him. Now at this point in the story, which is the end of our passage, this seems a good omen, doesn't it? It seems like things are beginning to turn, doesn't it? With that chilling prediction by Haman's own wife and friends. But I want you to I want you to think about something here. I want you to think about the fact that the situation is still far from resolved. Consider this. First, the death edict is still in place, isn't it? That has not been lifted. Second, Esther has not even made her request, even though she's been initially favored by the king. Third, and this is really important, Mordecai's downfall does not equal the revocation of the edict. These are two separate things. And fourth, as we've been told through the prior sermons, this edict is irrevocable. It's issued in the name of the king. This empire-wide genocide is now the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is where we are in the book of Esther. It may be the highest tension point in the entire book. Suspense is high. Tension is palpable. The cord is unresolved. Now, in the next two weeks, this prophetic portrayal will be resolved. God will make a way for the serpent Haman and his minions to be crushed, His people will be delivered so that they might perpetually celebrate that victory and bask under the governance and protection now of Mordecai the Jew, who is the king's right-hand man. That's what's going to happen in the next two weeks. But that's not where we are right now. So here's the question. How does that find its fulfillment in Christ and in the New Testament era? Because this is all just history right now to us. It doesn't really touch us, does it? Except that it's a very engaging story. How does it all find its fulfillment in Christ and in the New Testament era? Let's trace some of the specific correspondences from Esther to the New Testament based on essentially where we are right now. Well, first of all, we see that Messiah was raised up. Not a Messiah type, but Messiah himself was raised up. Remember, God has raised up Esther and Mordecai, but they were types. We were particularly interested that Esther approached King Ahasuerus on the third day. Now, having experienced a metaphorical death and resurrection, she was positioned to intercede for her people. And that points... To the eternal Son of God who became a man through his incarnation, our Messiah, who actually died for our sins, rose again on the third day for our justification, and now, as we've learned in our recent Hebrew series, ever lives to do what? To make intercession for us. Do you see how tight the correspondence is? How prophetic Queen Esther is? And of course, what about the serpent? On well, chapter 3 last week, we saw that the serpent struck, the seed of the serpent. He struck by securing the death edict against the Jews empire wide. And we know that the devil himself, that serpent of old, struck by crushing Christ's heel, bruising Christ's heel on the cross. Haman is clearly pointing us to that. It was a fatal strike, wasn't it? Seemingly crushing the hope of God's people, didn't it? Remember the road to Emmaus? The disciples were downcast. They were discouraged. Why? Because Christ was dead. He'd been struck. But of course, that same death secured the most amazing reversal of fortune in the history of humanity. Because that death did what? It crushed the serpent's head. And this was validated by Christ's resurrection on the third day. Setting up a millennia of intercession for the salvation of his people. So the serpent's head has been crushed. The mortal wound given so that Satan can no longer deceive the nations. The gospel is moving forward and while clearly opposed it is prevailing. Satan's kingdom is being plundered as we speak. And yet the chord is still unresolved, isn't it? The amen is far from being sung. Consider this. At this point in redemptive history, sin's presence has not been vanquished, has it? Just go down in the nursery. You'll see a graphic display. Death has not been swallowed up in victory, has it? We do funerals on a regular basis. Satan, though mortally wounded, has not been destroyed, has he? Instead, he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In short, you and I are engaged in mortal combat, are we not? It's a fight to the death with an enemy whom on earth is not as equal. Now to be sure, the day is coming when the serpent and his entire army shall be vanquished, cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20. Likewise, on that day, when the Lord Jesus returns, all things will become new, based on Revelation chapter 21. But all this has not yet happened, has it? So what are we to do in the meantime? How are we to live in the tension of the already and the not yet? What must we do to not only find rest for our souls, but to maintain that rest in the uncomfortable crevice of this interface? What does faith look like while we continue to sing the awe of all men, without resolution. Well, I think it looks like two things. First, faith accepts the tension that exists between the already and the not yet and all that attends it. Now, if you're a person that really likes resolution, this can be really helpful because We live in an unresolved world, don't we? And faith accepts that reality. For instance, let me give you some tensions in the macro realm. First of all, evil. It's pervasive. The effects of the prince of the air are everywhere, are they not? I mean, from war to devastation to seemingly weekly shootings in our country and to every manner of sexual perversion. I mean, even abortion. The murder of the unborn, while no longer endorsed at the federal level, praise God, is still legal in many states. And in four states, including Vermont, there's laws on the books that put no restriction whatsoever On the timing of abortion. Likewise how about the tension of death. Death pursues us relentlessly. Does it not? Yes Jesus rose from the dead. Yes we believe in the resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. But the blackness of death. Still reigns. You and I prepare wills. On the assumption that Jesus will tarry. You know, at funerals, we celebrate life, and we do it with grief and with tears, don't we? And, of course, many believers throughout the world face persecution and death for their faith. The last great enemy pursues us relentlessly in this already-not-yet-junction. How about just the notion of brokenness in a macro setting? I mean, think about the world. Marriages are broken. Families are broken. Friendships are broken. Churches and denominations are broken. Governments are broken. Of course, our bodies are broken. Think of the havoc wreaked by one little COVID-19 virus. The whole world is broken, isn't it? But faith, understanding that macro tensions like evil and death and brokenness, faith understands that they mark this junction in redemptive history between the already and the not yet, and faith accepts the times and submits to the tension. How about so-called micro-tensions, or maybe personal tensions, like our daily struggle with sin. I mean, it's seemingly unending, isn't it? An ongoing struggle, and often with the same sins. Our hearts grieve. We say, how long will I continue to struggle with this? How about our own personal struggle with brokenness? It's one thing to talk about it at the macro level, but I'm talking about our homes and our children and our church and our denomination. It can eat away at us just like a cancer, can't it? Then of course there's the daily disappointments, usually small things. I hit every single light coming from my house to church today. Every single one. I mean, they're small things, but they're vivid reminders that all's not well. The curse of sin has not been lifted, causing numerous and daily disruptions and disappointments, doesn't it? But faith, understanding that such micro-personal tensions are just part of the crease of redemptive history that we're living in right now, faith accepts and cheerfully resigns itself to that reality. And that allows us to rest. So let me give you a specific recipe for that rest, for what that faith looks like. Two things, and I close with this. First, it leans into the already. That's a phrase that I hear these days. Let's lean into it. I like that phrase. We need to lean in to the already. Now listen, for those who are outside of Christ, this already in Christ means that the devil can no longer deceive you or hold you in slavery to the fear of death and sin. Jesus Christ, dear unbeliever, listen. Jesus Christ right now is offering you freedom. He's offering you release from the tyranny of the devil's reign. He's offering you liberation from sin and death. From a life that will ultimately produce eternal torment. He's offering you liberation from that. He's offering you deliverance from a life of sin. He's promising you freedom right now. If only you'll believe in the one. Who confronted your enemy on the cross and won. If only you'll have faith in the one who alone has the Father's ear. Who alone received the golden scepter of the Father's favor. But he'll only become your intercessor if you turn to him in faith. Listen to me. The already, this time, the already is your time for salvation. And so I say to you, recognize your sin, accept that you are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God and let Jesus Christ deliver you from your real enemy that you might escape him and the sin which holds you down and experience eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And dear believer, Can I remind you of what has already happened to us in Christ? That through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which we're going to see in just a little bit with our baptismal service, we're going to see it pictured. That through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which is apprehended by faith alone, that we have received a new spirit who has caused us And resulted in us having a new birth, which produces a new heart that's based on a new covenant in his blood and results in us being a new creation. Sounds like a lot of new stuff there. And this means that you and I are now free from sin's penalty and we're free from sin's power. It is the spirit, not sin, that indwells us. And thus we are free to walk in newness of life. And you know what that freedom includes? That freedom includes the right to rejoice always, as we're commanded to do. Even considering it all joy when we experience various trials that come from this already not yet intersection. God has written his law on our new hearts and we're free to walk in newness of life, which includes celebrating a perpetual purim of praise to the one who has successfully interceded on our behalf. You see, our Savior is using this tension to sanctify to us, as the old hymn says, our deepest distress. So let us lean into the already. Let us embrace it for all it's worth, walking in the blessedness. Of being his people. We ought to be singing the hallelujah psalms every day. For what God has already done for us. But Wes what about all that not yet stuff. Sin's presence. And the devil's prowling. And death's relentless pursuit. What about all that? You know we find rest. By longing for the not yet. When sin will be vanquished. And the devil and his minions destroyed. And death will be swallowed up in victory. That's why all the groaning is going on. Creation and and believers and even the spirit itself is groaning. For the sufferings of this present age. All the tensions of this present age are what? Not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed. There's no comparison. It's certain. A glory is coming and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Someday soon, our faith will be turned to sight. His kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we shall spend all eternity doing what? Singing the sevenfold, Amen. So I say, keep groaning. And keep praying the Lord's Prayer. And be steadfast amid the tensions. Be immovable despite the dissonance. And be at rest without resolution. For a day is coming, beloved, listen a day is coming when the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, life is hard. It's hard. The interface between the already and the not yet is uncomfortable. But we can rest in our dear Savior by leaning into the miraculous newness of the already, praise God, and longing for the glorious resolution of the not yet. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we confess that it's hard to submit to your plan. It's hard to accept where we are in redemptive history. We don't like the fact that the evil one is still so present. Sin is so pervasive in our own lives. But we know that this is where you've put us. This is how you have laid it out. And you've given us your dear son to show us how to find rest in the midst of this tension. And so we ask you for grace. To lean into the already. To long for the not yet. As our Savior did. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of God Almighty. We thank you for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.